This is The Other Side of Midnight on 77 WABC. You know, you watch cable news, you listen to a lot of other radio programs, and you see all of these so-called military experts analyzing this war between Russia and Ukraine. And so many of them don't seem to have very much experience in combat or fighting in actual wars. Others maybe do have experience fighting in wars, but they don't necessarily seem to have the policy expertise necessary to be breaking down foreign affairs. Well, I am really pleased to tell you that uh, one of the brightest military and foreign policy minds I've ever spoken to is kind enough to join us yet again. He's a former naval officer who commanded over one 150 combat missions in Vietnam. He's a senior advisor to the Atlantic Council, and he's author of a few books, including most recently, The Fifth Horseman and the New Mad, How Massive Attacks of Destruction, excuse me, How Massive Attacks of Disruption Became the Looming Existential Danger to a Divided Nation and the World at Large. Gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome back Harlan Ullman. Harlan, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. I'm glad to be with you, Frank. So I've been reading your book. I've been enjoying it very much. I want to talk to you a bit about that in uh, in a minute. But I have to get your reaction to the Russia-Ukraine situation. When we spoke, I guess about seven years ago, you pointed out to me at the time the dangers of NATO's continuing expansion, including to Russia's borders. And you seem to think at the time that this could be provocative. Given the nature of NATO expansion, were you surprised that Putin reacted the way that he did by going into Ukraine? Yes and no. Uh, Putin, over the past 20 years, has had a number of grievances with the United States, largely because he believes that we have disrespected and demeaned him and Russia and have not given him the honor and indeed the place that uh, Russia deserves as a military superpower. And this has been accumulating in terms of his resentment. Uh, I did not think, and I argued strongly, that Putin would not be so stupid to go into Ukraine because all of his demands, that is to say a new security framework in Europe, preventing further NATO expansion and preventing Ukraine from ever joining NATO and becoming closer to the West, are now being completely voided and indeed, NATO will expand in the sense that Finland and Sweden could join, but NATO is going to increase its military capability on the eastern flank. And Putin is now engaged in a war that could become an Afghanistan on steroids and ultimately, if a negotiation is not found soon, could lead to Putin's dismissal as president of Russia, much as Sergei, as Nikita Khrushchev got fired two years after the Bay of Pigs in debacle in 1962. Now, people think that Putin is unstable is- and uh, not in control. I don't agree with that. Hmm. I think it's even worse. I think he's made a huge misjudgment. I think almost like a battered wife after 20 years shoots her husband between the eyes, Putin has become so frustrated and angered that Ukraine has become something that has uh, tilted his judgment in the wrong direction and led to this invasion. And quite frankly, so far, the Russians have been incompetent. They thought that they could unleash a, an offensive armored attack that quickly could drive to Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, and 
end the conflict shortly with doing minimum damage. They underestimated Ukrainian resistance and overestimated their military capability. And so now what they're doing is trying to mount overwhelming force to punish and terrorize Ukraine into some form of a surrender. And the problem is that while the Ukrainian military has been quite good and acquitted itself well, and even though it does outnumber the Russians, remember, there are about 250,000 Ukrainian active duty military and half a million reserves, and maybe 170 or 180,000 Russians, the Ukrainians are running out of ammunition. And so the question is how quickly that will continue. If the, Romanian, if the Ukrainians can continue to have enough ammunition, then the Russians will have their hands full. If not, the Russians will either drive into Kyiv and occupy it, probably change the government, or worse, surround it and starve it to death. And you will see from cell phones, you know, thousands of Ukrainians starving and dying. And that is going to make a humanitarian catastrophe, which will be very difficult for the West and the United States to respond to, because we're unlikely to use military force. And yet the Russians will be committing all these atrocities if if in fact they decide to use the siege. We will see how this turns out. Uh, I think under these circumstances, no administration, Republican and Democrat, could do much better than the current administration, Mm. namely because this is 20 years of grievances that have now come to a head. And it's rather like somebody who's been smoking 50 packs of cigarettes a day and after 20 years has developed cancer and wonders why. You can't go back and repeat history. And so the current administration has to play the hand it's been dealt, which is a bad hand for it and a worse hand for Ukraine. And if this turns into an extended guerrilla war, it's going to be a terrible hand for Russia because there are going to be thousands of body bags or dead young Russians. And the situation is going to be, you know, rather catastrophic, not only for those two countries, but the effects on the world at large are going to be chilling. Economic recession, oil going higher and higher and higher. And indeed, uh, China may become engaged because if the economy gets knocked off the rails, China is going to be very unhappy. And you will see that China has already volunteered to try to become the arbitrator to mediate some kind of negotiation. This is terribly serious. It's a humanitarian catastrophe. And quite frankly, because we are not going to use military force at this stage and begin or at least lead to World War III with nuclear weapons, uh, this is just a huge humanitarian disaster. Mm. Uh, well, it sounds like uh, not many reasons to be optimistic there. We're talking with Harlan Ullman. Uh, he's the author of a new book, which has uh, dramatically expanded my understanding of what the major dangers we're facing I- now. It's called The Fifth Horseman and the New Mad. Um, in terms of Russia and Ukraine, apparently the International Criminal Court at The Hague has already begun investigating whether war crimes have been committed in Ukraine. Uh, that's uh, that's the word from the chief prosecutor at the International Criminal Court. As somebody that's seen war up close and personal, from what you're seeing and what you're hearing out of Eastern Europe, do you think Russia has indeed committed war crimes? Sure. But war includes war crimes. Uh, Russia is already using weapons that have been prohibited um, in terms of cluster bombs and, and, and other weapons. But this is war. And... <laughs> Without making any kind of an equivalence, the United States clearly 
has also been guilty in Vietnam, the war I fought. Uh, we had something called the Phoenix Program, which was an assassination program headed by the CIA that killed some 50,000 Vietnamese who were suspected of being Viet Cong or North Vietnamese sympathizers. So war is filled with these sorts of things. In this particular case, however, the Russians are, I think, using excessive amounts of force that are, in fact, war crimes. But this, of course, happened in Afghanistan, and we chose not to try or prosecute Russians, Russians for war crimes in Afghanistan, which they committed, mainly because we thought that the Mujahideen were bleeding the Russians or the Soviets, and that was to our interest. Now, what's interesting here, and we'll get to my book shortly, Frank, but what Putin is using is a strategy of massive disruption, trying to disrupt the world order, trying to disrupt and divide NATO. And I think in this particular case that uh, his, his strategy is not working and has had the opposite effect. And as long as that holds, ultimately Putin will not succeed. However, how long that will take uh, is, of course, the issue. And the longer it takes, the more people are going to be killed mm. or wounded. Mm. Uh, on Tuesday, we saw several hundred Stinger aircraft missiles delivered to Ukraine's military. Some of the people that we've been speaking to in the run-up to this conflict and even in the midst of it, they have cautioned that perhaps the United States should not be so quick to give military aid to Ukraine. The uh, thinking being that this won't make the difference in, in a Russia-Ukraine war and will only serve to exacerbate tensions between Russia and the United States, the two greatest nuclear powers in the world. How do you see it? That's ridiculous. That argument makes no sense because the Russians are going to do what they're going to do. And quite frankly, when you think about exit strategies, Vladimir Putin may have no exit strategy except more force. And the only counter to that is for, in my mind, Zelensky to take a very Churchillian view. Uh, in, during World War II, in the early days of World War II, as the Nazis were overrunning the continent in May of 1940, Churchill made his first speech as prime minister before the House of Commons. And Churchill said, you ask what my aim is, my aim, I will tell you in one word, is victory. And my policy is to wage war at land, sea, and air at all costs. And I think President Zelensky has got to say our policy is victory to wage war at whatever cost as a way, perhaps, of either compelling Putin or convincing Putin that negotiations are important and that the Ukrainians will fight almost to the last man, woman, or child, meaning that the Russians are going to be in store for a very, very, very long fight. If the Ukrainians buckle and a puppet regime is installed, that means that Russia will be, calling, will be controlling Ukraine, and obviously the eastern members of NATO will be extremely worried in the Balts, Romania, Bulgaria as to what happens. Uh, the point is whether we can provide the Ukrainians with enough weapons to be able to defend themselves. <clears throat> and the point is, if we don't, they're going to be killed one way or the other. And so defending themselves, it seems to me, is the only sensible response, even though I think ultimately uh, the Russians are going to prevail 
unless something miraculously happens. So let's talk about your book, uh, The Fifth Horseman and the New Mad, Massive Attacks of Disruption. You write that these massive attacks of disruption, and not necessarily China or Russia, are um, a potentially even greater danger to the United States than a foreign adversary. Let's start with, uh, with what massive attacks of disruption are. What do you mean when you say the new mad? Sure. Uh, during the Cold War, and many of your listeners may not have been alive during the Cold War, the old bad was mutual assured destruction. What that meant was that both the Soviet Union and the United States had sufficient nuclear and thermonuclear weapons. And a thermonuclear weapon was a thousand times more powerful than the bombs dropped at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, could have destroyed each other after a first strike. But MAD, mutual assured destruction, prevented deterred World War, World War III. But today, massive attacks of disruption, in this particular case, COVID, has claimed the lives of about a million Americans, plus or minus. That is more Americans than were killed on every battlefield we fought since 1775. So during the Cold War, virtually no American lives were lost. And in the era of massive attacks of disruption, over a million Americans were lost. And I argue that there are seven major disruptors that indeed will threaten and, and the dangers to Americans. The first and most destructive is failed and failing government. Our government simply is not working. Government has passed and the president has signed a $1.2 trillion infrastructure improvement bill. Guess how much money has been appropriated and gone out the door? Zero. <laughs> Why? There is no federal budget. The government has been incapable of passing a budget for the last five or six years. And it operates on a continuing resolution, which is like saying to a business, you can't do any new business and you can't have any more money until I tell you to have more money and plan on that. It's impossible. Second is climate change. Look at the damage that has resorted from floods, from storms, from weather, from droughts. Afghanistan, a third of the population is starving. So climate change, whether you believe it or not, sea levels are rising, temperatures are rising, ice caps are melting. That's an issue. Cyber and social media. Literally, a kid with a 10-year-old kid who understands this stuff can probably shut down part of the electrical power grid. Social media, Frank, with deep fakes, I can <laughs> slander you in any way you can possibly imagine, to which you have no recourse, right. because once it goes on the Internet, you can't get it off. Debt. We have $30 trillion of debt. What happens when interest rates go up to 3 4 5%? The bulk of the federal budget, or a quarter of it, is going to go to pay for interest payments. What do you do then for social services, defense, and so forth? Terror. Terror is now largely domestic. It actually was 100, <clears throat> 100 years ago <clears throat> um, during the 1918 to 1920 Spanish flu, but it's entirely changed. And finally, drones. Imagine if the January 6th insurgents attacking the Capitol had drones with sticks of dynamite. They could have destroyed uh, the Capitol. <clears throat> so we have to deal <clears throat> with all of these issues as a comprehensive and coherent problem, and we're dealing with them 
on an individual basis, which makes it very difficult. For example, how well are we prepared for COVID-20 or COVID-21? And how well prepared are we for losing the Internet, cell phones, power grids, and so forth? We're not. And so we have to design systems that are capable of dealing with massive attacks of disruption, whether of man or nature, because unlike the Cold War and nuclear war, many massive attacks of disruption are not deterrable. You can't deter climate change. You can't deter acts of nature. And in some cases, you can't deter acts of man, uh, somebody who wants to get on the Internet and try and take it down and take down electrical power. And so what the book does is to say this is an urgent warning. It goes through the weaknesses of how our government is designed. And in many ways, the executive branch of government is still organized as it was in 1789 when George Washington was president. And it presents a series of recommendations in terms of our politics to try to draw the nation together and to correct all these issues, as well as deal with national security and national defense. So it sounds like in some respects, it's sort of an overall instruction manual, uh, one, a diagnostic report of what's going wrong in the country, governmentally and in the population at large. And it's also sort of an instruction manual on how to fix a lot of these key problems, uh, namely government dysfunction and polarization in the population at large. Can you explain, though, how these issues, uh, the issues of government debt, the issues of uh, division that uh, over the things like the COVID pandemic, can you explain how that's also a national security threat on the magnitude of a Russia or a China? Sure. Well, um, first of all, I know you called the book a manual. You said it in a nice sense. I think it's a little bit more than a manual. But let me let me get into this. What's happened, and I will give you the date when it started. August 7th, 1964, was the date when Congress passed the Tonkin Gulf Resolution that, in essence, declared war in Vietnam over a second series of North Vietnamese PT boat attacks that never took place. And since then, when at that stage, 75, 80 percent of people trusted government over the past almost 60 years, that figure has reversed. Who trusts government? Who trusts anything? Who trusts uh, the police, who trust lawyers, who trust the media, who trust Congress, who trust the Boy Scouts, who trust the clergy. And so what has happened is that confidence and credibility of institutions have been terribly degraded, which has led to polarization, which has been increased by both parties shifting to the far left and the far right. Now, this affects national security in several ways. First, the United States is not going to implode as the Soviet Union has. But unless we can fix our political system, I will guarantee you standards of living are going to decline for the vast majority of Americans. And the American dream is going to become increasingly elusive for children and grandchildren of the current um, generations. That by itself is a national security issue of great magnitude. Second, because we're so hugely polarized, it's almost impossible for us to be coherent about a threat. Um, if President Biden has a 55% approval rating over what he's doing vis-a-vis Ukraine, that will be a miracle. But people are going to be very divided. 
Generation XYZ, millennials, so forth, are going to say, what are we doing in Ukraine? The Republicans will come after Biden by saying he's weak. And so you're going to have a divided country. If that happened after Pearl Harbor, mm. December 7th, 1941, we'd be speaking Japanese. So the fact of a coherence that the country needs to deal with foreign policy issues uh, is being very much attacked by these massive attacks of disruption. Further, you know, I said government, failing government. Government is not able to do the people's business. And that, of course, is going to have huge consequences. Remember what happened after 1860 when the country was divided over states' rights. We had a civil war. I'm not suggesting we're going to have a civil war, but divisions are going to be huge. If we can't protect ourselves against cyber, against all these other attacks, it can be disruptive. Imagine going without cell phones, going without electrical power, without electricity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those things can happen. So the vitality of the nation could be sapped away by all these issues. Remember two years ago, Frank, not only when COVID hit, but think about all the storms that took electrical power away oh, yeah. from, from uh, Texas, the hacking of the gas, uh, the colonial gas pipelines that took gasoline away from the Northeast, of JRS, uh, GRS meatpacking and all the shortages. All these things contributed to huge disruption among society, our society, which is just not good for the health of the country. And indeed, it will certainly affect the economy. Look what the stock market is doing, simply because of all these disruptions that are caused by rising oil prices, which are now well above $100 a gallon. If the war in Ukraine continues, they can go further and further up, which means the economy is going to be hit, which means people's pocketbooks are going to be hit. All that's part of not just national security, but national security also includes well-being. And my book goes into chapter and verse about how we deal with all this and fixing it. And the big fix that I argue for is a national infrastructure investment fund. Now, it's very interesting. You go back in the book, and the book talks about 1918, 1920, and the Spanish flu. Remember, there was World War I that was going on. Woodrow Wilson was suffering from a stroke, and so there really was no president. 24 letter bombs blew up, killing two people, and the country was panicked by domestic terrorism far more than it was after September 11th. But what happened when the war was over um, and the new administration came in, the United States entered into the greatest economic boom in its history because it had electrification. Most of the country did not have electricity. Cars, Henry Ford and Walter Chrysler, and cars meant that you needed steel, you needed rubber, you needed gasoline, you needed hospitality, led to this huge buildup and the, and the economic rejuvenation. We can do that. But unfortunately, the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill that's been passed, which has not yet been able to be funded, right. is not big enough. And so what we need to do is do what we did in World War II with war bonds. We need to have about 3 or $4 trillion, which we can have by war bonds in which American citizens can buy at, say, 2% above prime, a 30-year bonds guaranteed by the government, which would be then put along with the $1.2 trillion in this infrastructure investment uh, fund and then used to support infrastructure. But not only would it support infrastructure, but if you recall during the 2008 financial crisis, the Troubled Asset Relief Program um, made public that is to say, made all the banks public companies in which the U.S. government took an equity mm -hmm. slice. 
Mm-hmm. And so for the $800 billion we put out, the company, the government got back about $100 billion in profits when those companies were able to uh, return what they had in terms of debt. And so in this particular case, not only would you be getting user fees and tolls from improving bridges, roads, et cetera, et cetera, but in some areas for in medicine, uh, in, in green technology, solar energy, et cetera, et cetera, you would take a slice of equity in the companies in which you were investing. So the government would become entrepreneurial, and over time, it would be able to build down its debt. And the good news is that unlike the current infrastructure bill, which has very, very slack, I think, oversight, because government is not good at oversight, you would have a lot of civilian participation. I was on a number of boards, and we were very, very uh, clear in our oversight of companies. If you're invested in the company, you're going to make sure that that money is well looked after. And so the oversight on this particular situation with an investment fund would be huge. And so you had three or four trillion dollars across the board, education, all the other areas that uh, that need investment. And in some cases, the government could take a slice of the action. And over time, if that was successful, they'd make money. This, to me, is a way of raising all boats. Which now, at the far end, and this will make your listeners smile, I can fix Congress overnight with one regulation. Would you like to hear that? I, I would. Before any member votes on a bill, he or she has to swear or affirm that they have read and understood. I, I have a feeling that would lead to very little legislation being passed in the. Uh... Well, let me just say that. Let me just say that the uh, people said it's impossible. The defense authorization bill was four thousand pages in the House and three thousand pages in the Senate. How can I possibly vote on something that big? If that's your argument, find another line of work. (laughs) Sarbanes-Oxley mandate that the CEO of any public company has to affirm that every figure that he or she allows the company to print in terms of profits, in terms of losses and balance sheets, has to be accurate. And if members of Congress cannot do that, then they should not serve. And I'll give you an example. In 1973, when Don Rumsfeld was Secretary of Defense for the first time, the Defense Authorization Bill, in the middle of a war in Vietnam, at which at one stage we had over 500,000 Americans deployed, was 90 pages long. And so why is Congress going through all this nonsense when nobody reads the bills and they don't know what they're passing? That is derelict. And if you can't fix it, we need a new system. I, I don't think you'll get any arguments from either the conservatives or the liberals listening to us right now. We've been talking with Dr. Harlan Ullman. He is a globally recognized thought leader and strategic thinker. A strategic thinker. He is the innovator of the concept of shock and awe. His new book is The Fifth Horseman and the New Mad, How Massive Attacks of Disruption Became the Looming Existential Danger to a Divided Nation and the world at large. It's available on Amazon or most places that books are sold. Let me end with this, Dr. Allman. One of the things that I get frustrated with, whether I'm talking about military affairs or taxes or infrastructure or how government works, 
I, if I say something that sounds a little conservative, I get a lot of our liberal listeners jumping down my throat and almost dismissing the entirety of four hours of radio that I do every day. If I say something that sounds a little liberal, I get the same thing from listeners on the right yeah. side of the political spectrum. It, it seems to me that we're almost in an era, and you cover this a bit in the book, where people want to close their ears and not even be exposed, let alone think about any any point of view other than the one that they're, that's in their partisan echo chamber. You've got some great ideas here for reform, for infrastructure reform, for political reform, but what is the first step in all this if the American populace is so divided that they can't even agree on whether or not the sky is blue, seemingly? Uh, that, Frank, that is a very perceptive observation. Let me just one other point. The shock and awe that I invented was not, not the shock and awe that's taken place either in in Desert Storm or the Iraqi Freedom, shock and awe was to win without fighting, and the Russians never implied shock and awe. It's it's a concept like the Blitzkrieg is one of the most under under misunderstood concepts in history, but that's just too bad. Uh, your point is absolutely right, and the only way we get back is that we have to respect truth and fact. In the old days, when they were old days, you were entitled to your own opinion. Today, you're entitled to your own fact. And so we need to have, I don't want to say a truth commission, but we need to be able to understand what truth and fact are. I am a radical centrist. I think the extreme views of left and right are dangerous. But most dangerous is we ignore truth and fact. And it's very, very difficult when the credibility and trust and confidence in the government is such that nobody believes the government, no matter what happens, and this did not occur overnight, it's happened over years. My view is that the only way you can fix this, and, and this is an interesting point, uh, which may seem a little bit orthogonal for the moment. You may not know this, but the United States has the second highest death rate to COVID of anybody in the world, except for Brazil. Now, here we have the best medical system in the world. Why is that? And Lancet, which is a leading British medical publication, argues because the United States is one of the unhappiest countries in the world, discontent with life among its population. And you find out that in countries where people are much more satisfied, the COVID rate is much lower. Now, I can't document that. I can only tell you what was said. And I think if that's true, the only way you fix this, Frank, is through my infrastructure investment fund, which will then make over time life much better, more productive for all Americans, because it will modernize the United States of the 21st century, education, 5G, Internet, um, all these things, these magnificent technologies we have in medicine, biogenics, and so forth. And over time, that will make Americans more content as we were after World War II. But this is not going to happen overnight. It's a long struggle, and along with failed and failing government, it is the pernicious effect of failed and failing government, and it's going to take time to repair. And I think that as long as we try to stress what truth and, con and, truth and fact are, and it's going to be very difficult, I mean, for example, the election. I go on a number of radio programs where people are swearing that the election was stolen. That's nonsense. Every court decision showed that was not the case, and this is one of the most uh, uh, better handled elections in history. We've had a lot that were indeed not good. 1876, 
uh, Nixon losing in, in 1960 when Kennedy actually bought West Virginia and Chicago. With the help of the mob, yeah. Absolutely. But the fact is that there's no trust and confidence in government or in any institution. And this is something that you're not going to fix overnight. And it's something that can be done, I think, by improving the well-being of Americans over time. And that's my investment. Dr. Dr. Allman, we're going to have to leave it there. I'd love to continue this conversation maybe next week because there's a number of other areas in the book that we didn't get into. And uh, I encourage definitely people to buy the book. It's called The Fifth Horseman. Its author is Harlan Allman. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you, Frank. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead.